if anyone is listening to this thinking, can I make it work? I don't know. Is it a really huge, scary commitment? I mean, I think it is a big commitment, but it doesn't have to be forever. You know, I'm often asked, well, is that it? You know, are you going to homeschool her until she's 16 or 18? And the answer is I have no idea. of what she said in this week's episode which again I think it's um it's a good three weeks since I released the last episode I'm being very sporadic with them I apologize but such is life in this week's episode I chat to Eloise Rickman Eloise is an educator um, a doula qualified doula and an author brand new author so Eloise's book Extraordinary Parenting came out really recently and we talk about the very quick process to get that out and we just take a deep dive into parenting home education the problems with various models of education I hope you enjoy it I really loved talking to Eloise she's so interesting if you liked it please let us know over on Instagram as ever please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, um, share it with your friends if you if you think anyone would benefit from it. Actually, just share it regardless, just as a gift to me. And if you want to come over to Patreon um, to join the community, it's patreon.com forward slash Lucy Lucraft. Thank you to all of my Patreons for making this podcast happen. You are gold. Enjoy the episode. I know. Thank goodness. So I have known you for a little while now and lived in your world for a while I've done quite a few of your courses but for anybody and I'm also about three quarters of the way through your book I'm not a fast reader so that's a testament to how brilliant the book is um for anybody who doesn't know you Eloise introduce yourself so my name is Eloise Rickman I live in South London with my husband Sam and our daughter Frida And Frida is five and she is home educated. So she's never been to school. She's never been to nursery. Um, She's kind of been at home since day one. And I am a parent educator. So I work with parents around the world through online courses and private coaching. And I'm also a writer. And as of a few weeks ago, an author. And I've just published book, Extraordinary Parenting. Um, So, yeah, I'm delighted to be on here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. So first of all, let's talk about the book because I know how it happened and was, yeah, blown away by the speed of everything. But but tell everyone how it happened. So for some context, we are at the time of recording still in a COVID pandemic. Um, and so we, I started writing a book a few months ago um, and it was the kind of mid-March when we had all been told by our Prime Minister, you know, you need to stay at home and we're going to close for schools. And at this point, I was really feeling quite torn as to, okay, how does, as somebody who works with parents, I was getting so many messages and emails and seeing so many parents out there feeling quite lost. But I was also seeing a huge amount, I don't know if you felt this, but so much kind of online noise. Um, Mm. You know, there were so many, and, you know, they were good, but it felt quite overwhelming. So many emails, so many blog posts, so many podcasts, so many kind of Instagram lives around parenting and homeschooling. And personally, at the time, I 
felt very much like I want to spend less time on my phone at the moment rather than more time. I felt like my phone was making me very anxious um, because, you, you know, you couldn't turn the thing on without hearing another horror story about the COVID crisis. Um, so I did quite a lot of digging and thinking, OK, well, I really want to try and show up for my clients and my community and do something useful. But I really don't want to put out kind of yet another blog post series or you know another set of YouTube videos or something um and I am somebody who likes books a lot that's kind of my (laughs) go-to if I want to learn something or if I want to escape or you know whatever it is I tend to return to okay I need a book for this and so I thought well really I think parents need a book to kind of help them through this crisis because although there are so many amazing parenting books out there um you know I've read kind of hundreds of them there are some fantastic books out there that have really changed my perspective on parenting and um yeah had a huge influence on my life as a mother and as a person so many of them when you read them in the context of the big changes which have happened over the past few months they don't seem irrelevant, but they felt slightly out of touch with what was happening. And so I I was in the bath, which is where I do all my thinking, because you can't have your phone in the bath and you can't have other people in the bath. Well, you can, <laughs> right? I lock the door. Um, and I just thought, oh, I wonder if I could just write a book on this, um, kind of on peaceful parenting and sort of home education, but within the context, not just of COVID, but I think... You know, we're seeing so many changes and so much uncertainty anyway at the moment. And I think we've always had to live with uncertainty as humans, Um, you know, and I don't think our generation in that respect is any different. You know, we've had generations scared of wars and, you know, scared of atomic weapons and so on. Um, But I do think that the changes are happening quite rapidly at the moment. And I think that we do... So many of us sort of live with this threat of uncertainty hanging over us a lot of the time. So I wanted to write a book which would help parents, not just through the COVID crisis, but through any form of uncertainty, um, whilst really helping them feel more grounded in their parenting, I suppose. So I spoke to my agent and said to her, you know, I have no idea how fast these things can happen, but what if I were to write a book? And she said, well, you know, very occasionally publishers can kind of crash publish things and bring them out really quickly. I think there might be some appetite. Shall we explore it? Um, And she was amazing. And within four days, we had a couple of different publishers who were interested. Um, And I had quite optimistically put, yeah, I can turn the book around in two weeks because I'd already been doing lots of research and thinking um, because in my mind, I was going to write a slightly different book, which is why things were already set up and I already had an agent. Um, And so I had already quite a lot of material that I knew I could draw on. But then publishers came back and said yeah we'd love it give us your book in two weeks oh, goodness. <laughs> so um my husband was amazing and really stepped up and yeah here we are now so we got it it normally takes I think about two years to turn the book around and my amazing publishers managed to do it in just under two months so it's been quite a whirlwind um but yeah it's super exciting to hear people like you actually reading it and <clears throat> I don't know, it feels it feels quite surreal that something I've wanted to do for so long has just sort of happened in this way. But it feels very cool. I feel very, very grateful. 
I think um, it's so natural for you to be writing books because I really remember one of the very first things that I remember one of the very first kind of stories that I remember watching Instagram stories that I remember watching of yours um, you'd said you had a big pile of books and you were work it was a work day and you said I sometimes think that my job is to read books so that parents don't have to yeah. and I don't know why but that particular thing has always stuck with me mm. that I think when so I've done a, a couple of your two of your two three of your courses and I, that is very much the sense that I get when I'm digesting the courses is that I'm digesting the courses and about a gazillion books that have gone into your brain to create the course. <laughs> and although I'm not saying that you're, you know, like a blinkist, you don't, you don't paraphrase the books, you don't um, plagiarize the books. What I mean is that I can very much see the kind of family tree, as it were, the book family tree. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's such a, an amazing job to be able to, to do, to be honest. And it's interesting because I haven't always done this work before I had Frida, my daughter, I was a senior press officer for a government department. And actually, it feels like although they feel on the surface like they're quite, um, you know, polar worlds apart. Actually, it feels like so much of what I did then, you know, reading reports or speaking to policy officials and then speaking to government ministers in terms of being like, OK, this is what you need to say in your interview or the other way around, kind of, you know, taking all of this stuff from the department in talking about it succinctly to press officers it feels like there's a lot of that which kind of uses the same skills so it's interesting seeing how that has evolved in terms of a career. So talk to me about homeschooling so you were homeschooled for a little bit weren't you? Yeah. So why sorry go on. No, just I was going to say just a couple of years. So just mm -hmm. I was six and a half. So in the UK, I was homeschooled for nursery up to year one. And then I went into school in year two. So why did you decide to do it with Frida? And did you ever think that you'd be the type of person to do it? Because I mean, based on your background, I'm guessing it wasn't a it wasn't a wild decision to make. But I think so many of us um who come to decide to home educate actually are kind of going against the uh caricature in our heads of a homeschooling parent uh, I don't know how if you think the same way yeah I think there is definitely a strong caricature around homeschooling parents um which is sometimes true you know, mm -hmm, for sure um but I think for me it it almost felt like quite a natural decision um I feel supremely lucky and I, I talk about this in the book a little bit at the start to have had those few years um at home with my parents and I feel like it's kind of a cliche but you know they really were not um money rich at all they were quite poor when I was um a young child but I felt like my childhood was incredibly rich because you know it was very idyllic we went to the beach every day we grew up in Brighton where you are now um in fact I think my mum lives a few streets away from you which is really fun um <laughs> So, you know, we went to the beach every day. We went to the park every day. Um, you know, I saw my grandparents a lot. They were the only holidays we had. Um, 
but it felt like, you know, I had everything I needed. We didn't have loads of money and loads of toys, but we had the library and there was a toy library. And yeah, I felt like my childhood was incredibly rich. And I feel like, although I did then go to school, I feel like when I started school, I was kind of streets ahead academically, I suppose, just because I had had all of that time just one-on-one. And so even though I then just went through very normal um, state schools, um, it then, I feel, gave me a really strong boost, which kind of helped me all the way through my school time, I suppose. Um, And yeah, I feel like it also, not just academically, but gave me a lot of confidence in terms of myself and gave me a strong sense of kind of self-worth which I feel has been really, really valuable. And it's something I haven't really reflected on very much. And then when I had a child myself, you suddenly start seeing all of these parallels. Um, And so, yeah, when when it was time for me to return back to work, I found that increasingly I really just didn't want to go. I had a lot of kind of, you know, crying and feeling increasingly like, oh, this isn't really the the childhood that I had and this isn't really the childhood I want to give my daughter and you know I think it's worth highlighting as well that this is an incredibly privileged position to be in to even be having those conversations because I know a lot of families will probably love to not have to return to work and love to be able to home educate and they just can't financially so it is an enormous privilege um but yeah my husband and I sat down and I think he was so he was not home educated at all he was in nursery at a young age and then went to school you know all throughout but actually he for kind of I guess almost opposite reasons was equally keen to home educate I sometimes think that he is even more of a proponent of home education Mm. than I am um, which makes it much easier I speak to a lot of people who would love to homeschool and their partners are really against it so I think again that's a big privilege to have a partner who is naturally just really on board with it um but I think we we kind of just thought well you know it's it's it feels to us like a positive decision rather than a negative decision so rather than thinking we don't want to send her to school because we think schools are terrible I think actually there are a lot of amazing teachers out there who do a really good job I just feel like it's a system and it's an institution and no matter how amazing the teachers she has are they're never going to love her as much as we are and they're never going to be as invested in her in her joy and in her happiness and in her unique personality as we are and it just felt like if we can give her a childhood where she gets to kind of explore at her own pace and you know spend more time outdoors and do more of the things that she is interested in then why wouldn't we and I think as well you know I know it is again very much a cliche but childhood really does whiz past and I it sounds corny I really enjoy spending time with her I really enjoy being a mum um and you know it's not the only thing I want to do but I really enjoy the time I get to spend with her and I think I would also feel quite sad if I handed her over to a school five days a week so at the moment it works really well for us and we're fortunate enough that we've kind of been able to be flexible in our work so my husband works as a researcher for a university and his work have been flexible too. So we've been able to make it work. Um, and it's not at all something I take for granted. But yeah, it is It is kind of the dream, being able to both work and do it. So yeah, if anyone is listening to this thinking, can I make it work? 
I don't know, is it a really huge, scary commitment? I mean, I think it is a big commitment, but it doesn't have to be forever. You know, I'm often asked, well, is that it? You know, are you going to homeschool her until she's 16 or 18? And the answer is, I have no idea. I mean, I would be very happy to do so, but she may have other plans at some point. You know, if she turns around to me when she's 11 and says, I really, really, really want to go to school, then, you know, at some point you have to listen to your child, right? That's the whole point of homeschooling. You want to to respect your child's wishes. So, you know, if she said that to me tomorrow, I would probably still say no, because she's only five. Um, But certainly as she gets older, I think if she was really keen on trying, I think we would, we would try and communicate that for her. Yeah, that, I mean, that's certainly how I feel too. Um, I, I, there was a couple of things that I wanted to pick out there that you were talking about. So um, in terms of teachers and yes, there are brilliant teachers out there, of course there are. And they it's very similar to politicians in many ways that they, I do believe that fundamentally the majority of politicians go into politics at grassroots level because they want to help people and they think that they can. The problem is ultimately the system yes and it doesn't matter how great a teacher you are you are still working within in to my mind a very very flawed system um so yeah it's best of a bad job is what it's going to be really and and I'm not saying no child is going to have a great time at school my husband had a great time at school he loved it but um which is the kind of the opposite of the experience that I had but it's yeah it's still a capitalist system that to my mind is teaching children to do the opposite of what will serve them definitely and I think the world has changed so much as well you know in terms of the kind of jobs that we now do and the kind of challenges that we face as a society. And I don't think school has caught up with it really at all. Mm. Um, But even, you know, thinking less about kids' futures and more about just children now in the present, you know, I think that with what we know about how children learn and what children need to be happy and healthy, you know, for example, one of the big things that we know is that children need to be spending more time outside. Children aren't spending enough time outside and children aren't spending enough time in kind of free play. And we know this and other countries have managed to do this successfully. I know it's, again, an enormous cliche to roll out talking about Scandinavia. (laughs) I think there's a reason we always talk about Scandinavian school systems, which is that, you know, actually, for example, children in Finland are super happy. They do really well academically and they don't start any sort of formal schooling until they're six or seven. And they spend loads of time just outdoors playing. There's not a competitive nature. They don't do any exams until right at the end of their school time when they do one set of exams and that's it. Whereas if you compare that to how our system is here in the UK, children are pitted against each other from day one. Mm. Children are compared, they're contrasted, they're ranked, they're observed. I don't think any human flourishes in that kind of environment. I certainly wouldn't. You know, if I was to choose an environment where I worked in now, 
you know, I, I wouldn't be able to bear it if people said, right, I'm going to take every single person who is a parenting author and writer and I'm going to rank you all and I'm going to <laughs> compare you all and you're all going to compete. There's only going to be a certain amount of levels. You know, even the fact that, for example, um, you know, grades are moderated. So you can't have everyone doing the same. You know, by default, some people have to do better and some people have yeah. to do worse. I think you're right, though, when you talk about it being a system. And I think, yeah, that there are teachers who are doing an amazing job trying to um, push back against it. Yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's just not a system. You know, I felt, and it's the same with every institution, I think. Mm. No institution, although it's there for a good reason. You know, it's the same with our NHS. It's the same with... um, you know, any kind of big institution that you have, you know, we're seeing this hugely at the moment with institutions like the police, you know, yes, you can have some good people in there. But fundamentally, I think so many institutions, it's just so difficult to have, um, you know, oversight and have a big institution which works well at every level for the people that it is trying to serve. And yeah, I think, again this is why I feel very privileged to be able to kind of opt out of it but I feel like an institution is probably not the best place for a young child to grow to develop and to do all the things that young children need to do yeah I completely agree and um respect to you for for pointing out the to opt out of something like this is a privilege and I wanted to talk a little bit about privilege within radical education um so the podcast I released what day are we Sunday fr- a couple of days ago Friday I talked to Lucy Aitken Reed who was also in your book um yeah. Lulastic um and the Hippie Shake anyway she is just incredible and I talked to her about um I think the question that I asked her was you know, I think some of the criticisms of we were talking specifically about unschooling yeah. and um some of the criticisms are that you know it is it is kind of very privileged a bit elite and actually you know she pointed out that by me saying it was elite you know elite I actually am erasing the hard work of marginalized folk who are doing it at the risk of their own comfort and safety which is absolutely right because there are people within radical education movements not just unschooling or just radical parenting who are doing it not just like you or I who are doing it um against kind of the status quo and perhaps to a few raised eyebrows um it's you know it's not safe for them because uh for context obviously Anais is not at official school age so I've it doesn't really matter what I do with her. I'm nobody's asking me questions. But once she gets to Frida's age, I will have to do official things um, to prove to um, the state that I'm educating her, which is what obviously you're having to do now. Um, for for you or I, you as a white woman, me as a white passing woman, uh, cis women, this is a different conversation than for um, a single parent or a a black woman or for a a trans woman or for any, you know, um, a queer woman. And, you know, any of these, well, I can also include men, but (laughs) so this is a very different conversation. Um, And 
I wonder for those of us with you know at the top of the kind of privilege tower how can we be making the these radical spaces that we move in safe open diverse and it's such a good question and I think what you raised as well is interesting the fact that when you get to five here in the UK this is um for a time when you become compulsory school age <laughs> and so we haven't had any contact with our local authority because Frida's never been in school so I think you don't at the moment the law is that you don't have to register as a homeschooler until um unless that your child has been in school and then you've deregistered them I see. knows that we homeschool Frida and I'm not opposed to anyone knowing um, but because it's not um, it's not compulsory so what our local council says um, they have you know a home education officer they say you know please do reach out but I had a long conversation with one of my friends actually um, about this very subject because I said to her well look do you think that um, you know it's better for me as you say somebody who has a huge amount of privilege to reach out to our local home education officer and talk to her about home education because I think they probably see a lot of children who have been taken out of school because their experience of school has not been positive and they probably see far fewer sort of I don't know intentional homeschoolers so people who are starting out with the vision of home educating so saying to her you know do you think that it's worth me contacting her even though it then means that our name is on a file and we might have to have more intrusive visits in order to kind of make the case for homeschooling more generally and she was like well you know I think that's an interesting idea and I can see how there might be positives from that but she was like you also need to think about you know, the fact that the way you home educate, and we do take a very relaxed, quite a child-led approach, but, you know, we also do things which are probably seen as very kind of um, traditional in terms of academics. You know, Frida is really interested in maths, so we do lots of maths with her. We're lucky that we live in a house with a garden with lots of books. Um, You know, my husband teaches her coding and stuff. We do philosophy with her, you know, and it's all stuff that we do because she enjoys it and we enjoy it. Um, But she was like, how do you think it would feel if someone comes over to your house, you know, a, a council officer, and they see that you've got books in kind of French and Latin and um, you know, then they think, oh, you know, this is very good. And then they see another family the next day who maybe doesn't have some of these privileges. Um, and they've got you in the back of their mind as someone who is doing home education right. And maybe they meet a family who is, you know, a black family who's homeschooling in a much more unschooling way. And they live in a flat. And she was saying, you know, how will that, do you think your perspective will encourage the council officer to be more open-minded or less? And I think it's it really has made me think a lot about that question of okay how do you use your privilege so I I reflected a lot after our conversation and I thought okay you know what I'm actually not gonna I I think I think that she was probably right I think there's probably no one right answer but I felt very strongly okay I don't want to be um helping prop up expectations of homeschooling that perhaps won't serve other families and I haven't actually listened to your conversation with Lucy yet, but I am really excited to do so because I, I adore her work. Um, and I do think that unschooling is something which probably takes a lot more. 
like you say, you know, it's not to say that other families aren't doing it, but I think it probably takes a lot more courage and risks a lot more for certain families to be taking that approach. Um, so I do, it is something I, I wonder about a lot. And I think not just in homeschooling as well, but in terms of education in general, I think, you know, opting out, like I was saying before, and taking your child out of that system is a huge privilege to be able to do so. But I also wonder sometimes about the fact that, well, if my daughter went to the local school, all this energy that I'm pouring into educating her, you know, would I be pouring some of that energy into trying to raise money for the school or on being on the PTA or, you know, trying to, you know, help support a wider community? And again, I don't, you know, I don't think there's a clear cut answer. Um, But something that increasingly, I don't know, I'm thinking about is, can we have more of a it feels like there's such a barrier between schooled communities and homeschooled communities. Mm. It feels like starting to break down some of these barriers and labels would probably help everyone because, and I think that would probably help more marginalized people within homeschool communities as well. Um, But I mean, I think living in London, we probably have a slightly different picture of homeschooling than perhaps we would in other places. So um before lockdown started I started meeting up kind of semi-regularly with a group of very local homeschoolers to me um I was delighted when somebody set something up and um you know just thinking about our immediate group you know there's maybe five six seven core people actually it's quite a um a diverse group in terms of probably um, you know, race and probably background and, you know, some have had their children in school and taking them out. Some have been kind of intentionally homeschooling from the start. So I feel very lucky in terms of, you know, we have, I think in London, quite a diverse community of homeschoolers, but it definitely, you know, all of the conversations that we have rightly been having recently, I think, and, you know, for, for lots of people longer around, okay, how do we ensure that we are not just homeschoolers but we are anti-racist homeschoolers who are Mm. really trying to think about what we're teaching our children both in terms of curriculums but also in terms of our own actions and values it's really again making me think okay how do I ensure that these groups are even more inclusive um and I think there are certain things that homeschoolers can do so you know meeting up in places which are easy to get to by public transport um which are free as well um Mm. there are certain things which are accessible in terms of um you know if someone is coming in a wheelchair I think there are certain things that should you know it sounds quite obvious when I'm saying them um but I think they should be a no-brainer to start off Mm. with you know is this what if you're having a book club or something as part of your homeschooling and we haven't done anything like that yet but you know again are you reading books which kind of centre diverse voices um but I think there needs to be more conversation more widely in the homeschooling community I think a lot of homeschooling leaders um especially I think in the US because yeah. I'm a bit behind the US at the moment in the UK in terms of big homeschooling groups and conferences and things but I know that um 
you know, a lot of the voices in the homeschooling community, and I can, you know, add myself into that as well, are are white. And I'm coming at home education from a white perspective. And I think we really need to be aware of that and to lift up other diverse voices as well. We're never going to get um, a community that feels truly inclusive. And I think that is a, you know, that harms everyone totally and actually at this point I just want to signpost the listeners to the conscious kit who have an Instagram which is free but also um, a Patreon um, which I would encourage you to sign up for if you can spare the cash because um, they uh, produce a heap of anti-racist content to help you um, teach your children to be anti-racist how to model anti-racism for your children Um, and yeah it's just invaluable um so I wanted to jump in and actually this is probably the good time to do it and talk about some of the issues with the different home education approaches so in your courses you're really honest about some of the issues with um things like Waldorf Steiner um and Charlotte Mason which I know is not there's not as many people going for charlotte mason in the uk is the us right but um yeah i it's i guess it's kind of growing um but so how do you reconcile those issues with your own kind of radically compassionate values i think it's about like you say at the beginning being honest like laying all of our cards on the table and really looking at these different philosophies for what they are. So I think Waldorf is a really good one. And I've seen actually some really amazing and inspiring accounts on Instagram recently. I was actually staying up really late last night reading through. Um, I can't remember for the life of me what it was called now. I don't have my phone in front of me. But um, it was an account by people who used to attend specifically one Steiner school in New York. And they were all sharing their experiences anonymously of being black and brown and people of colour in this Steiner school. Um, And, you know, unsurprisingly, if there's a whole account dedicated to it, those experiences were not um, positive, shall we say. And so I think it's about first laying all of your cards on the table. You know, yes, there are some positive things that we can take. But there are also some pretty dark elements to probably a lot of these different philosophies and you know I think Waldorf is one which is often looked at because um, you know Rudolf Steiner who was the founder of the Steiner Waldorf movement he had some pretty uh, out there views you know he believed for example in um, some quite strange views around astronomy and um, where the earth was and um, <laughs> he believed in dwarves and um, gnomes and you know all, all sorts of things which are quite quite interesting and quite strange <laughs> from my perspective um, but he also had some views which were you know pretty explicitly racist and he talks about there being you know different the evolution of different races and stuff and you know things that we would um I think see and recognize in um some of the more abhorrent movements that we've had in the 20th century and I don't think that's to say that there's no good that comes out of the Steiner Waldorf movement but I think we have to if we're going to 
utilize ideas coming from these philosophies, we have to be honest with ourselves first so that we can really engage critically with, okay, where is this coming from? And I think that if you were to say, okay, well, we just don't have any educational method with any racist past. I mean, I think you really struggle to find any educational philosophy, even philosophies like Montessori, which were very much, um, you know, she talks a huge amount about peace and peace education in her work. But even then, you know, I've read lots of accounts of people who now have said, well, you know, my child has been in Montessori schools and actually the Montessori school has been quite racist with regard to my child. And I've certainly been quite shocked. Um, I remember finding a, a Montessori teacher once online and, you know, it's the same thing of, well, I don't see colour because all children matter equally to me. And just thinking, like, you are writing this in, like, 2019. <sighs> How do you, it, how is this possible? Um, you know, so I think there's still, and I've seen again, you know, lots of um, discussions online around how, you know, there is within the Montessori community actually a lot of inbuilt and ingrained racism. Um, so I think it is we have to open our eyes first and really get a sense of okay, what are what are we dealing with here? And then it's only when we are have our eyes open to this but we can start thinking okay well which are the parts we want to take forward and which are the parts we need to push back against and maybe fight for um and I think it's easier you know for me as a home educator I can pick and choose so for example I can take the rhythm element of the Waldorf approach and I can take the you know moving at your child's pace element of the Montessori approach I think it's probably more difficult if for example you are choosing to send your child to a Steiner school because then I think you really do have to um, you know spend a lot of energy engaging with that within the school community ensuring that for example children have access to black crayons when we're in the kindergarten because traditionally black isn't used in Waldorf schools until children are a certain age Um, and that can obviously be quite devastating for children who are trying to you know draw their hair for example and they don't Mm -hmm. like colours Um, so I think if you are within these communities and I would also include homeschooling communities with that, I think we have to be open and honest, but I think we also need to really see where those problems are so we can start to counteract them. Um, but I would say, I think the solution to this isn't just, okay, well, ignore all these wacky alternative approaches and put your child in mainstream school because as we know, mainstream schools are horrifically racist as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't teach um, black history and there's been some really encouraging moves recently that I've seen um, to get more, you know, not just teaching things like slavery, but teaching black accomplishments and mm-hmm. You know, the wonderful impact that so many um, black communities have had on our country. So looking at, you know, a kind of a holistic history where we don't shy away from the, um, the atrocities we've committed, but we also don't just paint a whole group of people in terms of, well, these were the victims. Um, yeah. I think, you know, and there have been lots of, you know, we, we know from just from statistics, we don't even need anecdotes that black children are much more likely to be excluded and expelled. And then we know that there is, um, you know, big links to being expelled from school and then ending up involved in, you know, kind of 
dangerous activities here in London, you know, being at risk of gang violence and predation and then, you know, ending up in prison. And, you know, so we we still have very racist, I think, education system as a whole. So I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's not easy because I don't think any of us, whether you're listening to this and your child goes to school or whether you're listening to this as a homeschooler, I don't think any of us are exempt from this, um, you know, deep soul searching and really important work of ensuring that our children's education is as actively anti-racist as it, it can be, really. Um, yeah, for sure. It's definitely not a either or situation. We should all be doing this regardless of our uh, educational views and parenting views, whether we're peaceful parents or whatever type of parents we are <laughs> even if you use the naughty step you still you know <laughs> you still have to be um engaging with anti-racist work and modeling anti-racist behavior that's like yeah completely agree with you that should be at the top top of everything yeah I think so and I think but I think as home educators we have a special duty to do that because you know even from things like choosing if you're going to if you're not unschooling and maybe you're using curriculums of your child you know so with Frida at the moment I wouldn't say we're kind of fully unschooling um and I wonder if we will go more that way as we get older actually that's probably a conversation for another day Um, (laughs) but we so I will sometimes buy curriculums to use not to kind of sit down and do with her day by day but just as sort of inspiration for me because they often include loads of interesting reading lists and activity ideas and things and as someone who is uh, enthusiastic but time poor that (laughs) works but you know we have a duty for example to critically assess those things and I've been really encouraged by lots of conversations in some of the groups I'm in around okay can we for example find history curricula which are not actively racist Mm. and are not just centering the white experience and the western experience but can we find you know as well as talking about things like ancient greece and ancient rome are we thinking about you know ancient china um the indus valley all of these amazing civilizations that get kind of written out of history Um, so i think there is a lot of a lot of work to be done but you know even like kind of circling back to what we were saying about the privilege around things like unschooling I think even if you are taking an unschooling approach I think sometimes that can be interpreted as you know fine well we won't teach our children anything until they Mm. fall for it um which you know as I'm sure you discussed with Lucy that's not quite accurate but I think you know we can't even use things like unschooling as an excuse to not have difficult conversations with our children and not give them the education that they need in order to you know learn about things like racism and sexism and you know obviously in in an age-appropriate way um I'm not suggesting that you take your four-year-old and start talking to them about genocide but (laughs) equally it's about you know raising children who are going to be able to you know become good citizens and good neighbors um But I think to kind of go on a slight tangent here, I think it's really important to focus on our children's education and how we raise children. You know, I I think this very much and it's really at the the core of all I do. But I also think that it's it could be easy to say, well, I'm reading diverse books to my toddler. So I don't that's that's doing 
all of the work what I need to be doing and I think that one of the best and most important things we need to do with our children is modeling our own kind of you know our own practice whether that's reading books which challenge us or whether that's actively talking about the donations that you make as a family or whether it's going on protests or you know it maybe it's all of those things but I think that it, it's too easy to put all our hopes and dreams onto our children and I think although raising children is a vital part of tackling injustice and inequality I don't think the buck stops with them I think that's unfair and I think we need to be doing our own work just as importantly I think you're like the dream guest because you lead me on. You've basically led me on to every question in order of how I'm asking. (laughs) 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 Because um, so the next, so well, first I want to say completely agree with you. And actually uh, the other day, the Conscious Kids shared a piece of research and it was about um, some, it was research done on parents and I actually didn't, read it all or at least didn't take it all in but what I did take in was it doesn't matter how many books you read that doesn't make your children anti-racist you modeling anti-racist behavior makes your kids anti-racist and one of the the examples given was um going on protests and marches and um I had been so my eldest Anais is just three and I and living in Brighton um it's a very white area and so I do worry about I do worry about that a lot because she was born in London we lived in London for almost my whole life and uh so yeah you know which is much more diverse place and I wouldn't have had to think so hard about finding pockets of um communities that are diverse or Mm. whatever anyway we went on a march on Black Lives Matter march last week um, and I did worry about taking her and people were a bit sniffy about it but I took her and I took Edie and I went by myself with them both and I'm not virtue signaling here but (laughs) I am glad that I did that purely based on the fact that she will we've got an amazing picture from it and it's a jumping off point to remind her that these are things that she should be doing and that we do as a family so yeah um so I just wanted to go on and talk about parenting game changers because for me uh the number one has been sites of mutual fulfillment which obviously I talked to Lucy about last week (laughs) um but also rhythms which is the whole concept of rhythms I got from you I got everything from you and keeping things really simple especially when it comes to kind of toys books um that less is more approach but also just just parenting style weekends that sort of thing I think your one of your recent Instagram posts was about weekends and kind of the expectations on weekends and oh my goodness yes I think so many of us feel like we have to pack out our weekends and make them worthwhile really that's just capitalism at work making us feel that we have to be productive in every second of every day um what are some parenting game changers that you've come to that you've discovered for yourself, but also ones that you just really wish you could tell all parents about? Ooh, that's such a good question. I think one of the number one 
game changers, which I think leads on from what you were just saying about this kind of toxic productivity <laughs> that we are made to feel. Just allowing myself when I'm able to, to just prioritize doing nothing or doing things that I want to do. And I think, you know, it, it, we, if you have young children, you're probably continually fighting kind of, you know, against a tide of toys everywhere and, you know, plates with toast crusts on and, you know, a dishwasher or washing machine that continually needs replenishing or emptying. And I think there is always a job to do when you have a young child or more than one young child and letting go of some of that pressure to just go, you know what, my daughter's playing happily. I'm not going to do any chores right now. I'm going to read. <laughs> That's much more yeah. valuable for me. And I think it's really valuable for her as well to see a mother who is able to, yeah, prioritize her own pleasure over constantly having, you know, a dishcloth in her hand. Um, so that's been a real game changer for me, I think, trying to actively find space in my day, especially as a homeschooling parent, because you're with your child all day. So we have after lunch, a kind of parent instigated <laughs> quiet time. And it is very much a kind of, you know, I'm sure my daughter would at some points maybe prefer it didn't happen. Um, but it's really important for me and it allows me to then go and be a good parent for the rest of the afternoon. So, you know, she can play quietly or she can listen to an audiobook. But that is a kind of, you know, depending on what day it is, it might be half an hour, it might be an hour where I just get to lie on the sofa basically and just read my book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, so yes. good. it's so good. And it's hard when you have, you know, a baby or a younger toddler, but it's something that even when Frida was little, I tried to do even at just 10 minutes at a time um, to try and really grow that muscle. And I'm really glad that I've done that because, um, yeah, it's allowed me to read some really excellent books recently, which I feel very grateful for. So that's been a good thing. Um, I think also, so there's a book that I adore, which really, I think, both chimed with, um, I think in many ways, how I was parented, um, but really kind of made explicit to me how important being playful was with your children um, and for me that's been an enormous game changer so the book is called Playful Parenting and it's by someone called Lawrence Cohen and he is just amazing and actually if you have children who are prone to worry and anxiety he's also written a phenomenal book called The Opposite of Worry which is all about using kind of playful parenting techniques to support your child into relaxing around some of their anxieties and worries and he just yeah he is amazing I really recommend his books and I think just remembering and allowing myself to be playful especially when you know those parenting moments where you can just start feeling that wave of frustration or anger rising up in you um, I remember actually feeling like that yesterday evening I was tired and I was trying to brush Frida's hair before she went to bed and it's always, you know, it's always the same. I start brushing it and then she delightedly spins away and starts running. <laughs> and at that point, I'm just like, oh, I've got stuff I want to do. I don't want to be arguing with you about brushing your, your hair. <laughs> um, and, you know, I can really sense it really triggers me. I don't know why. There's something about it which really bothers me. And I could just feel that sense coming up. And sometimes I don't manage to catch myself. But this time I really managed to catch myself and just thought, you know, look if 
I can either go two ways here. I can either start getting, you know, really like, Frida, you just need to come here and, you know, let me do your hair, which doesn't help anyone because Mm -hmm. she then senses that frustration and responds in an even more, you know, triggering way. Or I can catch myself and try and be playful. And I can't even remember what I said. Um, You know, I think I've pretended to be a Moomin character. Um, and she's really into the movements at the moment and then was like oh you know Frida you've taken your lovely silky hair away from me and then you know (laughs) back and you know we brush her hair and you know it's those moments where if you can catch yourself it for me those playful moments are yeah it's what both helps life become smoother but also it dissolves so many conflict points and just, I think, makes life more joyful and happier. And as a parent for me, it has just been such a game changer trying to just remind myself, you know, yes, I can indulge myself into feeling cross and grumpy, but actually that's not going to make me feel any better. And it's sure as hell not going to make my daughter feel happier. Or I can bite my tongue and try and remember that actually just being playful for 30 seconds will then cheer us both up and then the playfulness doesn't need to be forced anymore it becomes natural um and we ended up you know I ended up brushing her hair like I think three or four different women characters and (laughs) it was fun and she was happy and relaxed which is exactly what you want when your child is going to bed um so yeah I think there was a uh, box out in your book about playful parenting or actually I think you maybe referenced a referenced it a few times in kind of practical Mm. terms things that you could do and I haven't I'm ashamed to say that although I'm definitely a more naturally kind of playful parent than my husband in that I will get right into her world and Mm. just in a like her kind of uh yeah her I don't know what the word is really it's a bit like um improvisation I'm very yes and with her um whereas Ollie's not as much but I think that's just because uh Anais is very similar to me and I was that I played like that as a child um I was very um yeah very had a really active imagination which actually was told to me in uh, you know as if it was not a good thing when I was younger but anyway <laughs> that's a whole other thing but um I've never really when it gets to um setting boundaries not being a permissive parent or triggering moments yeah. I really struggle I really struggle and I've really pushed away from the moniker of being a peaceful parent and that whole approach because I just feel like that's not for me because I'm too um feisty and like I feel the rage inside me even if I don't show it too much to be a peaceful parent but actually what I was missing was just a bit of playfulness yeah. and I'm not saying that's easy I definitely yesterday was a hard day and I was really snappy um and you just have to kind of forgive yourself for that and move on because you're human uh, but the playful when I'm at my best and probably only the past week I've been using some of the examples that you put in your book and oh my goodness it's a bit fake it till you make it in a way (laughs) so works it really works (laughs) yeah and I think so much of that actually is peaceful parenting I think there's this this myth sometimes that you you either are a peaceful parent or you're not 
And I think that, yes, some people are naturally more inclined, probably because of how they've been parented themselves. But actually, so much of it is just resetting those, you know, those immediate responses that you give, those reactions. Mm. I think sometimes it is about faking it until you make it. And then you fake it enough times but suddenly you realise that you are responding in a way that feels playful without even really thinking about it. Um, That's so true. The thing that I'm really struggling with right now is um, praise. Mm. I really, really struggle not to give praise. Oh, it's so, it's so hard because it feels so unnatural, but I mean, we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about (laughs) why you shouldn't praise um but anyhow I am not going to take up any more of your time but I would really before we leave love to ask you what your signature dish is because I see your stories I know you can cook (laughs) signature dish that is a very tricky question um so if if I'm having people round for dinner I usually do a whole bunch of salads. That's usually my favourite thing to do. Um, So maybe roast some veggies, toast some seeds, um, you know, get down the Ottolenghi cookbooks (laughs) together. That tends to be what I do because it's just so easy if you're having friends over. Um, If it's just me, I think my signature dish is probably Marmite on toast. (laughs) (laughs) That's my love language right there. <laughs> so much marmite on toast when I was pregnant. It's one of my favourite foods. I think it is probably, it would probably be, you know, my up there with my absolute favourite meals. Oh, I love it. I love that. I flipping love marmite on toast. I haven't had my breakfast yet, so I think I'm going to have that. <laughs> I think I might do the same. <laughs> Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Oh, Where can everybody find you online? They can find me. So I'm on Instagram at MightyMother underscore. Um, I have a free Facebook group for parents, which is A Beautiful Childhood, which you can come and hang out and chat. Um, And I have a website called A Beautiful Childhood as well. Um, But yeah, I mostly hang out on Instagram. So come and find me at MightyMother and say hello. I'd love to chat to you. And your book, Extraordinary Parenting, is in all good bookshops. It is. And yeah, if you like it, let me know. It still feels very surreal seeing people reading it and buying it. So I'm still in a complete honeymoon phase.